Welcome to everyone that's online with us. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 5, we're starting a new series that I'm excited about entitled Cultural Distinctives, and that's just a sophisticated name for what makes us us, what makes us us. And this week I saw an interesting picture online. I was hearing of the story, obviously, Fires are ravaging California and the West Coast, and we want to be interceding and praying that they'd stop. We have some amazing firefighters that are part of our church, men and women that serve our community in that type of way that we're very thankful for. And there was a story about 14 firefighters that were on the front lines that were put in harm's way and were not able to evacuate quickly enough, so they had to deploy their emergency measures. And so they look like this, these emergency personnel personal shelters. They're like a big sleeping bag. You've probably seen this. They've been using these the last about 30 years. They've saved hundreds of firefighters' lives where you can get in, climb in. This is some volunteer firemen climbing in, practicing, deploying these, getting under this, and they can withstand temperatures of 500 degrees. And, you know, I was thinking this is really a prophetic picture of what's going on in our country right now as our culture just seems to be on fire. Whether it's the COVID pandemic, whether it's the dire straits of a uh, financial crash that we've been in. Obviously, we've been talking a lot about the racial pain that's been so trying for so many. And now we're in this political turmoil with an election coming up. And I think this is a picture of what many Christians feel like they need to do to make it through the rest of 2020. Ah, just hide, just climb in a little cocoon and shelter yourself. But I want to tell you that Jesus has something far greater for us. And as Christians, we're not called to just retreat. In fact, we're called to transform culture. Matthew 11, chapter 12, it says this interesting phrase, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven advances forcefully. And if you looked at the Greek, you'd understand that the next part really says, and the spiritual violent will lay hold of it or take it by force. And God has called us as kingdom people to not retreat, but to actually move forward and to bring a kingdom culture into the fires that we see around us. So I remember when we first moved to San Diego, and you've probably been in a situation like this where you step into a place and you're overwhelmed by the enormity of the task. We moved here not knowing anyone and, and to the end of 2007, 2008. And I remember getting to the city and just going, this is so big. And, and we, we don't have even a building to meet in. We don't have finances to start a church. How can we uh, affect a place where only 4% of the population is actually in church on a, on a weekend? And Lord, what do we do? And I, I remember one pastor, uh, I, I, I was in a, in a meeting with him and he looks and says, San Diego is known as a pastor's graveyard. And I said, thank you, encouraging man of God for that welcome. <laughs> I remember one morning where I'm, I'm praying, going, God, I just feel overwhelmed with the task. Maybe you felt that in your school. Maybe like me and in your high school, you felt like you're about the only Christian. And so you, you just feel like, man, how can I bring a change? Or maybe you're a, a hospital worker and you're the one nurse or the one doctor who you feel like serving the Lord. Or maybe it's in your business and, and you just sense that no one around you, you feel all alone. And so you just feel this weight of how can I bring the 
the kingdom of God. Well, I remember that morning crying out to the Lord, saying, God, you got to speak. Like, I just don't even know where to start. And as I waited on the Lord, I heard that familiar, still small voice. And that morning, it was very specific. I felt this impression to go to the corner of College Avenue and El Cajon Boulevard at 10 a.m. You know, I'm like, is that me? Is that God? I, I, I think it's God. I, I called Kendall, who came out to plant the church with me and said, man, would you be up for just going? I think God has an assignment for us on College Avenue in El Cajon at 10 a.m. We had just moved here. We didn't know anyone. He goes, yeah, sure. I don't have anything else to do. <laughs> but I want to tell you, you need to walk with friends of faith. You need to walk with people who are willing to take bold steps for Jesus. We went out and, you know, when we landed on the corner, nothing really happened. We looked around. There wasn't really anyone there. So we just started walking and we're encountering a guy. We asked him if we could pray for him. It didn't really land. He was, didn't seem really interested. We kept walking, asked one or two more people. I need to tell you that sometimes following God, things don't just happen immediately. It takes perseverance. We made it about 15 yards down the street. We come to a bus stop, and there were these two women, and you could tell they were in turmoil. We asked what was going on, and this one lady who you could tell her she was, she was in some pain, she said, I just was poisoned. I didn't see when my apartment complex put out notices that they were going to fumigate, that they were going to bomb for insects, and I was taking a nap, and I woke up to, to this, this fog, and now my chest is on fire, and we're trying to get to the emergency room. And I said, well, let us pray for you. We believe in Jesus. He has power to heal. He laid hands on the sick, and they were made well, and we laid hands on her. And this doesn't always happen, but this time it did, and her body starts trembling, starts shaking, and she starts swaying, and all of a sudden she's taking these deep breaths, and her eyes start growing wide, and her friend is stepping away, looking at us like we're killing this woman, and she stops, and she goes, I can breathe. I can breathe. I'm better. I'm better. Her eyes have cleared up, and we said, that was Jesus that healed you, and he doesn't just want to heal your body. He wants to heal your heart. Do you know that he can save you? Do you know your sins can be forgiven? We preached the gospel to her. We shared that he died for her sins, that he rose from the dead to defeat the power of sin and death, that he's wanting her to invite him into his heart, into her heart as her Lord and Savior. And right there, she gave her life to Jesus. She didn't have to go to the emergency room. We followed up the next day. We visited her apartment. We took her a Bible. It was amazing seeing the kingdom of God invade in a troubling situation. And from that point, we've seen God do those kind of situations in numerous times. Where did we learn to live that kind of Christianity? It's right here in this book. And we learned it from following the model of Jesus. Turn with me to John chapter 5. This morning, and I want to unpack this beautiful text because if you don't understand this, you'll never really get why Jesus did what he did and how he did what he did. It starts with this. Sometime later, Jesus went up to Jerusalem for one of the Jewish festivals. If you're new to the Bible, the book of John, which we're reading from, was written by Jesus' best friend, John. Jesus was a Jew. Jesus lived in Israel. The capital of Israel is Jerusalem. And Jesus was traveling to Jerusalem with his friends, the disciples. And he comes through one of these gates and he comes to this pool. It says this, now there was in Jerusalem near the sheep gate, a pool where an Aramaic is called Bethesda and which is surrounded by five covered 
colonnades. Here a great number of disabled people used to lie, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. So this was kind of like a hospital where a bunch of sick people would go hoping to get healed because what would happen is an angel would come down and touch the waters. And if someone got in after that supernatural occurrence, they would be made well. And so it says, one who was there had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and learned that he had been in this condition for a long time, he asked, do you want to get well? Sir, the invalid replied, I have no one to help me into the pool when the water's stirred. While I'm trying to get in, someone else goes down ahead of me. Then Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your mat and walk. And once the man was cured, he picked up his mat and walked. That day on which this took place was a Sabbath. You see this beautiful story of Jesus supernaturally healing a man. I love this story. We were in Israel last summer, and I got to visit the Pool of Bethesda, and I was so excited, and I was excited to preach a sermon on it at some point. I knew I'd preach a sermon on it sometime, so I, I, we pulled out the camera and the microphone, and I rolled up my pants to, to, to about up to my knees because the Pool of Bethesda is no longer this deep pool. You know, it's, it's been 2,000 years, so it's about this deep. So I was just getting in, and Hudson was filming me. The boys are standing with me, and I don't know why. Sometimes people just do strange things that are tourists, and this guy from another country strips down to his little skibbies and hops in behind me. Now, I'm, the water's this deep, and so my boys are, like, cracking up, and I'm already, like, doing my message. So I'm, like, preaching in the pool of Bethesda, and this guy in these skibbies is, like, walking behind me the whole time. So my boys are cracking up. And so I, I but I'm like, I'm just going to keep preaching, and I keep going. And finally, when I'm done, then he gets out and puts his clothes back. I don't know what. And then Stephanie walks up, and we have to leave. And I'm like, so obviously I'm not showing it to you today. I don't know why people do what they do, but I do know from the scripture why Jesus did what he did. And let me unpack that for you, John 5, 10. And so the Jewish leader said to the man who had been healed, it's the Sabbath. The law forbids you to carry your mat. That's how religious leaders talk when they're frustrated. But he replied, the man who made me well said to me, pick up your mat and walk. So they asked him, who is this fellow who told you to pick it up and walk? The man who was healed had no idea who it was, for Jesus had slipped away into the crowd and was not there. I, I love Jesus. Like he's so, he, he, he's, he's not into, you know, everyone making him king. He, he's just, he's just so Jesus-y, you know? And uh, we wouldn't do that, right? If we did something, we'd be like, what's up, Instagram, watch me, you know, I'm the Pool of Bethesda healer, right? <laughs> Later, Jesus found him at the temple and said to him, now listen to this, see, you're well again. Stop sinning or something worse is going to happen to you. How many times have you ever heard a sermon on that in the American church? No, we're, you know, we're all like, and then Jesus healed him and gave him a lazy boy chair and free Starbucks coffee. No, Jesus looks at him and goes, you're well. Stop sinning. Cut it out. Something worse is going to happen to you. Jesus, oh my goodness, I, I can't wait to unpack this. The man went away and told the Jewish leaders that it was Jesus who made him well. 
verse 16. So because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the, Jesus, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to him, My father is always at work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. You see, the Pharisees, they were living in a different culture. We're talking about cultural distinctives. And what you have to understand is there's these two cultures in competition with the kingdom culture. One is the culture of religion, and the Pharisees were involved in that. And the culture of religion loves judgment and control and being prideful about how perfect I am. And so when Jesus heals someone, they don't care about the poor guy that got healed. They care that he's carrying a mat. You missed the whole thing. Because they were heaping these rules upon people. Yes, the Sabbath is good. It's a day to rest and worship God. But they added to it all this little legalistic. Man, the church is so good about adding legalistic rituals onto things so we can control people. So we don't want to be a part of that culture of religion. On the other side is the culture of this world. And that's where we just dive into whatever feels good, whatever I want. Right? Have you heard people say that? Like, if it feels good, do it. Or I can love who I want, or I can be with who I want. It's all about me, me, me. And Jesus to him says, you're well again. Stop sinning. And then there's this culture of the kingdom. And Jesus unpacks it by saying this, my father is always at his work to this very day, and I too and working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus gives them this answer. You've got to watch this. I want you to highlight it. Very truly, I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing because whatever the father does, the son also does. I'm going to give you three points of how Jesus worked. And this is so important because Jesus is our model. Point number one, God is always at work. He said the Father is always working. This confronts so many people's view in our world today of deism, that God is just this master creator clockmaker that created the world and spun it into orbit, but now it's just functioning on its own and God's just kind of sitting back uninvolved. No, God is an intimately involved father. He cares about every aspect of your life. I care about every single thing that is happening in my kids' life. I, I care about the food they eat and the instruments they play and the extracurricular activities and how they're feeling that day and about their friendships. Do you know that that's how God is with you? He is at work in your relationship. He is at work in your marriage. He is at work in your dating relationship. He is at work in your friendships. He is at work in your family situation. He is at work in your work. He is at work in your school. God cares. You're not just one of 7.6 billion people on this earth. You're a dearly beloved child. And he is at work in every aspect. Point number two, you've got to catch this one. And you want, you've got to highlight this phrase because this is imperative for you to understand accurate Christology, the study of Christ, the study of Jesus. Jesus says, the son can do nothing by himself. Now, I grew up in church and I did not understand what this whole Christianity thing was about because 
I would read the miracles of Jesus, and Jesus would cast out a demon, or he'd heal a sick person, or he would multiply food, and I would say, yeah, he can do that because he's Jesus. Because he's God in the flesh, walking around, he can do that because he's Jesus, but I'm not Jesus. That was right. (laughs) I'm not Jesus. But do you know that Jesus said, no, the reason I do that is not because I'm God. He actually said the Son can do nothing by himself. So let's unpack this for a moment. You have to go to Philippians 2 to truly understand Jesus' modus operandi, his way of operating. It says this, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's saying, hey, you should be like Jesus. Your mindset should be like Jesus. This is the goal of walking the Christian life. Who, through, though was in form God, so yes, he was God. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the Trinitarian understanding of the Bible. He was God, but he did not account equality with God something to be grasped, but he emptied himself. Why did Jesus do no miracles until he was 30 years old? It's because he had emptied himself and become fully man. He was not just walking around as empowered God doing all his miracles. No, he had emptied himself and been born of a carpenter and a teenage young woman. And so for 30 years, he lived just as everyone else until he was baptized, not just in water, but do you remember what came down on him? The Holy Spirit, like like a dove, not a dove. A dove didn't come down and land on Jesus's shoulder. No, the Holy Spirit came and baptized him. And then immediately he goes off and begins operating in the power of the Holy Spirit. And therefore, when he was raising the dead, when he was healing the sick, when he was casting out demons, demons, when he was cleansing lepers, it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. And that's why in John 14, he says this crazy statement, and you will do, he who believes in me will do what I've been doing. He'll do even greater things. Why? Because you have the opportunity to be full and filled and baptized with the Holy Spirit and then actually move in his power. The son can do nothing on himself. Point number three says this, Jesus only did what he saw the father doing. He only did what he saw the father doing. So you're like, well, I get that Jesus went to Jerusalem because that was the capital for the Jewish people. I get that he went into this pool maybe because he cares about sick and hurting people. But why, Jesus, would you go into a place where there are all these sick people and only heal one person? Like you're Jesus. You care about everyone. And the reason he did it is he said, because the son only does what he sees the father doing. And that day, what was God doing? He was healing this one man who had been lame for 38 years. Two things you've got to catch from this. One, this tremendous opportunity you have as a Christian. Christian means little Christ. And I don't mean that you're a Lord and Savior. I don't mean that at all. I mean that you are supposed to be a person following the model of your Savior. And what does Jesus do? He listened and obeyed. And so that day when he was walking in, God was saying, this man, 
He was saying, corner of college and El Cajon, there's someone that I want to touch this day. It's their day. And so Jesus said, this man, and he listened and he saw, and so he goes and he heals. A tremendous opportunity you have as the people of God to partner with God and see him work his miracles and bring his kingdom reality in the midst of a culture that's on fire. On the flip side, it brings a tremendous peace because you might be going into your workplace thinking I'm the only believer there. You might be in your family and you go, everyone is just lost and I don't even think they want to know the Lord and I'm the only believer and how am I going to save this whole family? And Jesus is saying, no, only do what you see the Father doing. He's at work. You can't do anything on your own, but he will show you what he's asking you this day. It takes that crazy load off your shoulder and just says, no, it's not about you just working and and doing it. It's about you grabbing the hand of your father and just say, I'm with you and I'm following you and I can't wait to see what you do, Father. I think some people should start getting encouraged about right now. You see, because it's your inheritance to hear God. John 8, 47 says this, whoever belongs to God, hears what he says. John 10 says this, my sheep hear my voice. You have an inheritance, beloved, to hear the voice of Jesus. How does this affect us? It affects every aspect of life. It affects who you marry. For me, God spoke to my heart as I sought him. If you're single in this place, don't just marry the cutest person you see. Or what we said in my day, don't just marry someone who's foxy. I don't think you use that word anymore. Man, that person's foxy. Don't marry the foxy person. Marry the person that Jesus is calling to you and speaking about. And even in our relationship, Steph and I were dating, and and things got a little hard. It was all her fault. And uh, I'm I'm totally kidding. But we were thinking about breaking up, and we said, hey, we need to pray. And as we went off and sought the Lord, God spoke to both of our hearts, no, stay together. This is your spouse. I'm so glad we did, because look at how many times we multiplied our lives on the front row. But it's not just that. It's what to do with your finances. It's where to live. The reason we're here is because God spoke to us. The reason we have this many children is because God spoke to us. Over and over again, God wants to speak to you. That's the difference between living in the the culture of religion, which just says you have to do, 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 or the culture of this world just says it's about you, 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 whatever I want, whatever I feel, however I can get mine. No, it's about God. What are you saying? It's hearing and obeying, and that is how you live the abundant life. And that's how you change the culture of the world. You know, it's not just for us as individuals, though. We belong to a family, and that family is the church, and God has specific culture for each family. Like our Herber family, we have this culture. We have these four H's, hunger for God, humble ourselves, honor each other, and hardworking. We're, start, uh, Herber starts with H, so we have these four H's, and that's like our family culture. Well, God has given us a culture for this church, and God spoke it. Just to review for a moment, so many times churches start because one group gets upset with another group about the color of the carpet or about the style of worship or about whatever. And, and instead, for this church, as God just spoke to us. He spoke to us about, there's someone speaking to us right now. Bless you in Jesus' name. 
Um, so God spoke to us about Luke 4, 18. I remember driving in our car. We're driving down the road, and there's this, we're listening to this CD about this, this, this woman who had been praying that this last generation of Christendom would be people who live like Jesus, like it was all about Jesus and doing the things of Luke 4.18. And then she said, God gave her a word and said, actually, there'll be a great sign in my death. And, and she had these two pastors were in a room when she died. And then the, the, the doctor comes in and pronounces her death at 4.18. Now you try to time the exact moment of when you pass away from natural causes. And so we're sitting there listening to that. Steph and I are driving our car. We're hearing that, and we just feel the presence of God filling our car. And we're like, that is Luke 4.18. That is the verse for our church. And then I looked at Steph and said, Stephanie, what's today? And she said, it's April 18th. And we went, 418! Ah! And from that moment on, we've understood that Luke 4.18, which is the ministry of Jesus, it's where Jesus defines his ministry is what we're called to. And let me just read this to you. It says, The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And we understood these five pillars, these five callings that Jesus was highlighting for our spiritual family that I'll be unpacking more in the coming days. But the first, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, that each person in our church, it wouldn't just be coming to, to have some great worship or listen to a pastor. They would know that I can walk in communion with the Holy Spirit, that I can be his friend, and that I can be empowered by him. Number two, proclaiming the good news. We're going to preach the gospel boldly. I remember we were doing our first outreach here in City Heights. We were doing a Halloween harvest fest, and we were going to have games and candy and food for people. But some of the people in our congregation, they challenged me and said, but you're not going to have people come and then actually preach the gospel to them, are you? Like, why don't we just give them candy? And I said, because we got to give them the gospel. I'm so glad we did that because 200 people gave their lives to Jesus that day. Here, when you preach the gospel, people get saved. When you don't preach the gospel, no one gets saved. You can write that down to the poor. We understood that Jesus' heart was for the poor. The poor are like God's smallest children. When my smallest is around, I'm, I'm most concerned for him because he's most vulnerable, and that's how God's heart is for the poor. And we understood not to just reach the poor, but to empower the poor and to launch them into ministry. And that's what we are called to do. Liberty to the captives and recovery of sight for the blind and for those who are oppressed, we understood that we would be a church that contends for healing. Healing of people's physical bodies, healing of mental and emotional pain, healing of the, the multi-ethnic pain that's in our country. And lastly, proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor that we would be a people that believe for the whole body of Christ and believe for all Christians to be blessed. And so we were on this retreat in the mountains saying, what are we contending for? What are we believing for? And we drew out what we now call the famous lightning bolt picture. We drew out, I, I, I did it again on my iPad so you can see I know my artwork is stunning. This 
is the skyline of San Diego. Can you tell? This is actually Petco Park right here. And then we drew these lightning bolts. Maybe it was the San Diego Chargers that were influencing us at the time. Let's take a moment of silence. <clears throat> but we believe that we're not just coming to have a nice church, but we're going to impact the city. And so we had these five different callings of spirit-empowered ministry. Every person, every single person, we're here to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. You're going to go into your schools, your workplaces, your neighborhoods, your families, partnering with the Holy Spirit to impact people. We're called to the poor. We're called to, to, to meet the needs and not just, not just go and, and, and have a nice little entertaining church service, but actually to transform lives and lift up. That's what Jesus did, boldly preaching the gospel that each of our people, you know, they say that only 4% of millennial Christians actually know the gospel. How, how can that be? Like the gospel that Jesus came and was born of a virgin, that he lived a perfect life, that he died a sinner's death on the cross to pay for our sins, that he rose from the dead, defeating the power of sin and death. I shared it in 15 seconds. How can only 4% of the church know that today? But you're called to know this and share it with confidence and see people saved. We're called to healing physically, mentally, emotionally. And this thing that we've been talking about so much this summer, healing the, the multi-ethic or the racial pain and seeing a church where all peoples are empowered to preach the gospel, to make disciples, to bridge the gap. If you don't like multi-ethic, you're not going to like heaven because every kindred, nation, tribe, and tongue is gathered around the throne. In about 10 years, three out of five Christians worldwide will be from Africa. The church is exploding in Latin America, 200 million Christians now in China. This is the church. It's called to heal the multi-ethnic pain, blessing the body of Christ. We're all one big church in this city. And I wonder if that's one of the reasons why San Diego has seemingly been so sheltered as so many West Coast cities have had so much pain. And of course, we want to pray for them and have compassion. But I wonder if it's because 136 churches got together two months ago and said, we're going to stand on the wall and pray on the streets for the protection and healing of San Diego. Where else is that happening? It's amazing. And the Bible says that there's a blessing commanded when brothers and sisters dwell in unity. So we believe in blessing the whole body of Christ. And what happens when you start living out these callings? You stop just doing church and you start transforming lives. If you met our missionaries, so many that are on the field all over the world, you find people that didn't grow up in the perfect life or the perfect family. You find people, some that were addicted to drugs, actually numerous ones that were addicted to drugs, different ones who felt fatherless growing up, all kinds of pain and challenges. But as they got into this Luke 4, 18 and 19 culture, it absolutely breathed life into their spirits and transformed the way they lived their life. And now they're out in different nations transforming the world. I tell you, we're supposed to be a church of missionaries, but not everyone's going to go to different nations. God wants to transform your life and deploy you into your sphere of society to transform those around you. For it to happen here, for it to happen in your neighborhood, for it to happen in your business, in your school. I've been amazed that marriages have been reconciled as people have started listening to Jesus and letting him transform prodigal kids coming back to Jesus. Financial 
blessings so that people could learn to be extravagant to the poor and to, to, to missions and to those around. The transformation happens when we start hearing and obeying and living out the kingdom values. We're not supposed to just hide in these little fire shelters as the culture is set on fire. Instead, we're supposed to do this. I, I saw this also this week in regards to firefighting. I, I saw this picture where it said the military has been enlisted to fight fires in California. And it showed this right here, this massive C-130 military plane. Not down on the ground hiding, but flying high above. Let the reader understand. High above. Selah. Think about this. High above, seated in heavenly places, dispensing, sending out this supernatural red substance. Let the reader understand. If you're not understanding yet, turn to your neighbor and say, what's red and covers over pain and destruction? The blood of Jesus. <laughs> High above. The mil enlisted the military. It's time for the church to stop seeing ourselves as living in a peacetime, but for us to understand we live in a war, but our battle's not against flesh and blood. It's against the principalities and the rulers and the authorities in this present darkness that are trying to bring destruction and demise for the people that you love. And it's time for us to go high above and see ourselves as a wartime church going far above and dropping bombs of Jesus' love and grace on a world that's on fire below us. A supernatural, this supernatural red fire retardant, which puts out the fire, and do you know what else it is? It's a fertilizer that then brings new growth. That's really good. Like that's this, you're the only service that got that right there. Man, save the best for last right there. Fire retardant and fertilizer. I love this quote. This powerful quote about Christians. This is what I believe Christians are supposed to be. It says, they live in their own countries, but only as aliens. You know, if, if 2020 has just been a miserable year for us, it potentially could be because we're seeing this as our only country. But this isn't your final destination. This world is not your home. They have a share in everything as citizens and endure everything as foreigners. Every foreign land is their fatherland. They're not just checking out and reading their end-time books. And yet for them, every fatherland is a foreign land. They know they don't belong there, but they're fully invested where they are right now. Next. It is true that they are in the flesh, but they do not live according to the flesh. Yeah, we're just human like everyone else, but we don't live according to the flesh. We're not sowing to our flesh. It's not all about us. It's not about all that I can accumulate and, and all of my pleasure and all of my comfort. No, instead, their citizenship is in heaven. They obey the established laws, 
but in their own lives they go far beyond what the law requires. They are poor, and yet they make many rich. Christians dwell in the world, but are not of the world. You're like, oh, that's a cool quote. Yeah, I saw that brand, N-O-T-W, really cool. No, this is from almost 2,000 years ago from the second century letter to Diognetus. And I'm sure you're glad your name today is not Diognetus. But that is what you are called to be, brothers and sisters, that we are not living of this world, that we're high above. We've been conscripted and enlisted in God's end-time army to bring a transformation, to fight the fires that are going on with something far more powerful, to step into impossible situations and bring hope and life it's time to stop hiding from the fires, but it's time to fight them with kingdom weapons. Why don't we stand up?